Dinah Lance is a fighter, and her one-woman war is against the czars of crime, the frightened men who dread the blonde bombshell, otherwise known as Black Canary. episode of Flowers and Fishnets, a Black Canary podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Daly, wishing you a very happy Halloween. I wish I had something more topical to cover for this holiday. I wanted to pick up on the Black Canary stories in World's Finest that saw Dinah fighting a man-bear and a werewolf and other monstrous elements that might fit in with the Halloween season. Unfortunately, I just ran out of time. I know I've been using that excuse a lot of late, but between the Secret Origins podcast and all of the new Star Wars material loading up the Dead Boffin Spies podcast, I really haven't had Black Canary on the mind as much as I'd like. I promise to try and deliver more content for this podcast in the months of December and January, including two possible crossovers with other podcasts. You're also going to hear another episode in early November covering the Brave and the Bold issue 61 and 62 as part of a tribute to the late, great Murphy Anderson. This episode, however, is going to cover Black Canary issue 5 that came out a couple weeks ago from writer Brendan Fletcher and artist Pia Guerra. Before I get into that story, though, I had a few new or revised recommendations for other podcasts. The first is King Size Comics Giant Size Fun, hosted by Kyle Benning, but I'm specifically recommending his new weekly segment, Turtle Tuesdays. This is a segment where Kyle talks about one of his lifelong passions, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I've always been, well, I guess more of a fair-weather fan of the Ninja Turtles. I watched the cartoon for a little bit, I collected the toys for a little bit, I've read some of the comics, I really like the property and the idea... I just don't have that one defining aspect of the Turtles that I love. Well, Kyle does. He loves all of it, and he's going to tell you about it a little bit at a time on Turtle Tuesdays. Check that out. It's part of his King Size Comics Giant Size Fun podcast feed. Who else? Uh, A few updates. Radio vs. the Martians, hosted by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran, have just started a spinoff called Podcast La Vista, Baby. I'm going to say it right now, if you can win at podcast naming, Mike and Casey get the gold for that one. Podcast de la Vista, baby, chronicles the cinematic achievements of the right honorable Arnold Schwarzenegger. The Council of Geeks podcast, hosted by Nathaniel Wayne, now includes the 90s comics retrial, where Nathaniel, and sometimes a guest, review a random assortment of comics published in the early and mid-90s to decide if the books are really as horrible as we tend to think of them today. Uh, If you listen to this show, there's a good chance you also listen to the Fire and Water podcast hosted by Rob Kelly and the Irredeemable Shag. As part of that show's feed, Rob produces the Film and Water spinoff show, where he and a guest review new or old movies. Those episodes are always a blast, except when he talks about Kurosawa movies. Then it takes a sharp decline. Another new show I want to praise is the Shazam cast. It's taken way too long to get a podcast dedicated to the original Captain Marvel, but the result is worth it. 
Jeff, the host of the show, is obviously a huge fan of the Shazam comics. In just a few episodes, he's covered a short character biography, he's reviewed Captain Marvel's first appearance in Wiz Comics number 2, and he had a conversation with another huge Captain Marvel fan, Carl Shinyama, and they had a great discussion about the complicated copyright and trademark history of The Mightiest Mortal. It's a fun show. If you like the character, you got to check out the Shazam cast. Finally, very good, very generous friends of the show, Darren and Ruth Sutherland, they host the show Trekker Talk, which is not about Star Trek. I admit that it took me way too long into their first episode before I made that realization. Uh, Trekker Talk actually covers the comic book Trekker, which is about a futuristic bounty hunter that was written and illustrated by Ron Randall. I'd never heard of this comic before their podcast, but they make it sound really, really cool. I know the Trekker Omnibus is on sale, including digitally at Comixology, now that Dark Horse is putting their books on Comixology. I'm probably going to check it out, hopefully when I have some free time, if that ever happens. Um, But the main reason I wanted to mention the Sutherlands is that they sent me a very nice gift recently, a signed copy of Green Arrow, the Longbow Hunters trade paperback. And of course, the signature is Mike Grell, not their own. I definitely want to cover that story on the podcast someday because it is a very significant event for Black Canary. Not a good one, but a significant one, similar to how the killing joke is significant to Batgirl, but not as permanent, of course. Uh, But yeah, at some point, maybe next year, I'll cover the Longbow Hunters, and I'd like to cover it with Darren and Ruth, so this is me asking them to join me on the show for that episode. I haven't asked them privately yet, I'm like a guy who proposes to his girlfriend at an NBA game where the whole stadium can see on the Jumbotron. Now the ball is in your court, Sutherlands. Okay. Well, we are going to take a quick promotional break. Don't go away, because after this commercial, we'll have Black Canary Issue 5. The Film and Water Podcast, a weekly show about movies old and new, hosted by obsessive movie nerd Rob Kelly and a rotating series of special guests. From sci-fi to horror, dramas to family films, comedies to adventure epics, we watch it all. The Film and Water Podcast is part of the Fire and Water family of podcasts, available weekly at fireandwaterpodcast.blogspot.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. Trekker Talk, a fan podcast devoted to the adventures of 23rd century bounty hunter Mercy St. Clair from the pages of Trekker Comics by creator, writer, and artist Ron Randall. I'm Darren. And I'm Ruth. We'll be discussing the stories, characters, and art in this excellent retro sci-fi adventure series, as well as having side conversations about other areas of fandom. We hope you'll join us as we travel from the dangerous back streets of New Gallif to the depths of outer space and everywhere in between. Trekker Talk is available at podbean.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. Black Canary Issue 5 was published by DC Comics on October 21st. The issue was written by Brendan Fletcher, with art once again by Pia Guerra, who came in on last issue, and also Sandy Jarrell, who provides the art for four out of the last five pages. 
As usual, Lee Lawfridge colored the issue, Steve Wants inked it, and regular series artist Innie Wu provided the main cover, which sees Dinah and Bo Maeve face-to-face about to throw down. The issue opens with Black Canary, the band closing out a show in a rare, happy moment. They haven't destroyed the joint or forced the audience to evacuate. The show went well, and Dinah thanks the rest of her bandmates, she calls them her family, and the group embraces in front of the audience. Meanwhile, Dinah's ex-husband, Kurt, watches from offstage, feeling a little dejected. After all, isn't he her family? Why doesn't he get a hug? After the show, the band hits the road again, this time in a minivan instead of their normal tour bus, which got a little trashed during the chase scene in issue 3. Kurt tries to have a nice moment with Dinah, tries to connect with her, but all she wants from him is information. What does Kurt know about Ditto and the group hunting them? He doesn't get a chance to answer them because Heathcliff, the band's manager, announces they have arrived at their destination, which is a secluded spot in the middle of the woods. The record label is no longer fronting the bill for any more hotels or accommodations, since they're already covering the collateral damage Dinah leaves in her wake. Later that night, the group sits around a campfire while Kurt does a security sweep around the campsite. Lord Byron lets Dinah know that their next stop, a town called Waynefleet, is the band's hometown. Also, Bo Maves. Paloma defends Maeve a bit. After all, none of them saw her kidnap Ditto, except for Ditto, who doesn't talk. Dinah raises some questions that honestly should have been asked earlier. She wants to know more about the record label that lured her into this band and dropped Ditto on them without warning. She thinks the label is setting them up, or setting her up specifically. After they go to bed, the white ninja, seen last issue, drops out of the trees and sneaks over to Dinah's tent. The ninja pumps an auto-injector into Dinah's arm, which wakes her up, naturally. Dinah and the ninja fight, with Dinah wanting to know what kind of drug or chemical the ninja just pumped into her. But the ninja says she didn't put anything in Dinah, she took something from her. Dinah is startled by the white ninja's fighting style. It's recognizable, and presumably something rare because Dinah demands the name of the White Ninja's master. Instead, White Ninja does some parkour tricks, leaping into the trees and disappearing. The next day, Black Canary is doing a signing event at a store called Anamatapia Records in Waynefleet. Kurt gives Dinah some grief about keeping to the band's schedule instead of tracking the ninja who took a blood or DNA sample for some reason. It's clear that Kurt isn't happy about Dinah's choice or her connection to this new surrogate family. It's also clear that Dinah couldn't care less what makes Kurt happy. During the signing, we meet Lord Byron's family, including her sister, Shelley. Get it? Lord Byron and Shelley? Do you get it? If not, forget about it. We don't get much time with them before the signing is interrupted by a speaker being thrown through the storefront. A crowd of angry hipster musicians has gathered outside to challenge Black Canary to an epic battle of the bands. The crowd consists of three other bands named the Banco Jim, the Order of the Crimson Crystal Cult, and Duchess. They all claim to have a beef with Black Canary. While Dinah is more than happy to smack them around the parking lot, Heathcliff tells her that the record label agreed to enter Black Canary in their battle of the bands that night. When Black Canary goes to the venue to play their set, they are surprised by the inclusion of a fifth band, Maeve's Band. Boem takes the stage, with Maeve supported by three bandmates named Bonfire, Harpy, and Anti-Gravity. When Maeve starts performing, Dinah is mesmerized by the way Maeve dances, comparing it to martial arts moves. Then Maeve opens her mouth and lets loose her own sonic scream. It shatters the stage lights, but even more devastating, it seems to knock Dinah unconscious. 
And that's where issue 5 ends. This was another really solid issue. Uh, The series hasn't let me down yet in terms of being entertaining and interesting. It does feel like there's a bit of a change of pace this time around. There is more world building, more talking, and less action. We do get one obligatory fight scene between Dinah and the White Ninja. It's okay, but I don't think the point of the fight was to dazzle us with how badass this action is. Really, that moment was about planting the seed that there is something familiar about this ninja. Dinah either knows the woman under the mask, or she knows who trained her. And in the post-Flashpoint continuity, we only really know one thing about Dinah's training, that she studied under a sensei named Desmond Lamar. At least I think that's all we know so far. I could be forgetting or omitting something. So, given what things from Birds of Prey and Team 7 Brendan Fletcher has brought into this series, I wouldn't be surprised if we get more backstory of Sensei Desmond, who I believe is still dead, Then again, (laughs) comics. Other than that major reveal, I did like the part in the fight when Dinah used the cord from the tent as a whip. Uh, It was really clever. It shows her quick thinking and using her environment in a scuffle, which is always great. Beyond that, though, this fight didn't seem as thoroughly planned out. Like I said, the scene wasn't about combat. It was about that moment of recognition. But I have to think if Annie Wu had drawn the scene, then there would have been a little more pop to it. And that brings me to the art. I said pretty much the same thing last issue. It doesn't have that pop, that flavor of kinetic energy that Annie Wu's work has. But it isn't a step backwards. It's serviceable, but it's better than that because it's not jarring in how it looks different. There are two artists on this issue, Pia Guerra and Sandy Jarrell. I didn't realize that until I reread the issue a second time. My eyes glazed over the credits, and I did not notice the change initially. Now that I look at it, yeah, it's fairly obvious in how Jarrell draws Dinah, particularly her face. It's different than how Guerra and Wu draws it, but not so different. And I said this last time too, but it's a credit to either the editorial team that they found fill-in artists with compatible styles, or that the artists are talented enough to ape Annie Wu's style and make it flow pretty seamlessly. Annie Wu's style is the best, but these are very good fill-ins, and I can't say enough how important Lee Lofridge's colors are. The colors are so important to this book. More than most, I think, the colors here set the tone or the tempo, to put it musically. Uh, They can lull you in with these sort of muted whites and tans, and then slam you like a ninja chest kick with these sharp, vibrant, contrasting palettes. It's so much fun to look at. On to the story bits. I like that Dinah is asking questions about the record label, starting to wonder why they were so quick to put her and Ditto together with this already established band, and why a rock concert tour of all conspiracies. Uh, There's also a couple moments in this issue that made me kind of question Heathcliff. I mean, he is the band's representation for the studio, or rather vice versa. He is the label's representation working with the band, kind of keeping them on track. And there are a couple of times in this issue where he seems to interrupt what could be important expository dialogue or just kind of put things in motion that lead to this conflict between Maeve and Dinah. I don't know, I just got a vibe from him for the first time that maybe he's not on their side. Maybe he's got some other agenda. Mostly, though, my favorite part of the story is how Brennan repurposed some villain names from Black Canary's history. Uh, The other members of Bo Maeve's band, which is called Bo M, and I think we're supposed to read that phonetically as Bomb. That's how I read it, and I like it, so I'm going to call the band Bomb until I hear otherwise. 
but Maeve's bandmates are named Harpy, Bonfire, and Anti-Gravity. Bonfire was the name of a female arsonist that Dinah tangled with back in Detective Comics 554 and 555. Anti-Gravity was a character she fought in World's Finest Comics. Harpy... I'm not sure there is a Black Canary connection. There were a number of DC villains named Harpy. I can't think of any that Dinah fought, though. I could be wrong. I could be forgetting something. And then the other bands that Black Canary goes up against. The Order of the Crimson Crystal Cult is an awesome reference to the Cult of the Crimson Crystal that goes all the way back to Dinah's appearances in Flash comics during the 40s. I actually mentioned on an earlier episode of the podcast that the Crimson Crystal Cult was basically Black Canary's first rogue, the first costumed villain or villains that she fought in her own story, not with the Justice Society. The other two bands, Banco Jim and Duchess, I don't know if those are Black Canary references at all. Dinah could have foiled an evil duchess in the Golden Age, or that could be a reference to Archer, the animated series. Uh, As for the reveal on the final page, we did find out last issue that Maeve got a sonic scream of her own, but it's interesting to see how it affects Dinah by apparently shutting her nervous system down. Hopefully she can get over that, because now I really want to see these two throw down with their powers. As I said earlier, this was another good issue. I have no idea how long the mystery of Ditto will play out, but it seems that the threat of Maeve has come to a boil. Hopefully we can see that resolved next issue as the mystery of the White Ninja continues to build. Before I go, I got a new iTunes review from The Inspector C, who said the show is super niche, but as you are reading this review, it's probably up your alley. You'll love it. Well, thank you very much, Inspector. That means a lot to me to hear you say it. And thank you to everyone who supports this show on Twitter by favoriting or retweeting, especially Ange, Sin, Gregor Rougeau, Trekker Talk, Craig Lives Here, Jimmy Antoine, David Golding Artist, Firestorm Fan, Keith G. Baker, The Hammer Strikes, Ian Crawl, Chris Vaglio, DS and RS, Ronald Manuel, Cindy Womack, The Aquaman Shrine, Quinn Rollins, Gabriel M. Cox, Hover Girl, Coffee and Comics Blog, and Brendan Fletcher. That does it for this episode of Flowers and Fishnets. If you enjoyed the show, you can leave a comment on the blogger page, blackcanaryfan.blogspot.com. There you can contact me with any questions or comments. You can also find me on Facebook and on Twitter using the handle at blackcanaryfan or at ryandaily01. Or you can search the username Count Druncula. Flowers and Fishnets is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the views expressed in the show are mine alone. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes, and are believed covered under fair use. And I make no money off this podcast, so no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening, and happy Halloween. You know I can't stand it, you're running around, you know better.